The idea of a curse is nothing new. The house where a grisly family murder occurred, blood seeping into the original hardwood floors that sold the young buyers in the first place. The dark stretch of rural highway where kids, thinking they were invincible, became inextricably linked with puddles of gasoline and twisted metal. The asylum where well-meaning, or completely psychopathic, physicians performed experimental and often unnecessary procedures. The covered bridge, or the condemned barn, doors falling from the hinges on the outskirts of your hometown. The patch of woods where, supposedly, a witch's coven met their violent end. Or a group of teenage Satanists practiced gruesome ceremonies they thought might bring them power or knowledge. Now, nothing grows, and the animals stay far, far away. Do we find cursed places, or do they find us? If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably read the books, and you've seen the movies. We've all heard the stories, the myths, passed from generation to generation, from locker to locker. Where I went to high school, there was a place, maybe a mile outside of town, that everyone called the Zodiac Shack. Legend has it that the eponymous serial killer and author of cryptic, often misspelled letters claimed a victim there, or multiple victims, depending on the storyteller. This was a small structure, like a hunting lodge, a place whose real owners had given up on looking after long ago. I'd gone there, on more than one occasion, and while my memory is hazy, this was well over 20 years ago, I remember looking through the smudged windows and seeing a five-pointed star encased in a blood-red circle painted on the floor. Thing is, did I really see a pentagram? Or was this a mixture of the stories told then and those I've heard since? Dark legends are punctuated by buzzwords, charged words, like pentagram or zodiac. They stick with you long after you've first heard them. There's been enough printed and filmed at this point that it is very unlikely that whatever happened in that shack, if anything, did not involve the Zodiac Killer, but did something else. Really, is it the horrific event that curses a place, or the morbid attention we give to it after the fact? Does the lingering horror attach itself to the place, or is it created because of us? We give places personality, intention. We charge them. Once the legend has been created, does it really matter what may or may not have happened there? Instead, maybe we should be more worried about what might happen next. Ladies and gentlemen, the doctor is in, and the haunt is on. Chapter 4 Carolyn Hooper braced herself against soft pink metal. Rubbing her temples, she avoided eye contact with the stainless steel bowl below her. For the past ten minutes, she had been listening to the faint bustle of conversation from the ship's starboard muster station, trickle down the hallway, and slip under the bathroom door. A number of women had come and gone in that time, using the facilities, freshening up, oblivious to the plight of Carolyn in the last stall, purging her lackluster airline meal. Not a big drinker, and famous for her motion sickness, Carolyn cursed herself for having those two Bloody Marys during her layover in Atlanta, 
and for having the screwdriver as a chaser. She cursed Jasmine back home for insisting, over the phone, on that third drink, and for bailing on the cruise and suggesting Carolyn take her place. More than anything, though, Carolyn cursed the fresh divorce paperwork waiting on her friend's kitchen counter, the image of Thomas, Jasmine's soon-to-be ex-husband, with his secretary on her desk, dress flipped up and nearly over her head, made Carolyn want to retch again, only there was nothing left in her. Now, she was tearing off squares of toilet paper to wipe her mouth. Pausing to listen for any stragglers in the bathroom, and to make sure she was alone, Carolyn left the stall and washed her hands in the sink nearest the door. She splashed water on her face, thankful that she didn't have to worry about reapplying any makeup. Doing so wasn't really her thing, never had been, and wearing a mask for the better part of two years, she had pretty much given up on any sort of cosmetic assistance. She'd always thought she looked better, brighter, without it. Her own ex-boyfriend, Ben, thought the same. He was someone Carolyn wished would become a lingering afterthought, but even after a full year apart, he still commanded more unauthorized attention in her mind than she would have liked. When he wanted to be, he could be so sweet, say exactly the right thing at the very moment Carolyn needed it the most. He did have another side to him, though. But she didn't want to think about Ben or the time she'd spent trying to adjust to life without him. This trip was about being spontaneous, about stepping out of her normal character. She appraised herself in the mirror, studying the brown, almost see-through wrap that concealed the blue bikini underneath. What am I doing? She thought. The swimsuit, one of the only options available for sale in Pennsylvanian winter, was definitely a far cry from her normal character. While waiting for her test results, during embarkation, she'd snuck off to the bathroom with her carry-on and changed into the bikini, thinking that shedding the jeans and blouse would get her more into the spirit of this impromptu vacation. Instead, she just felt awkward. Not that Carolyn was a Puritan by any stretch, but showing that much skin just wasn't her thing. She was, and not only accepted, but preferred, to be seen as the nerdy friend, more reserved, the bookworm. That was her thing. The muted strings being piped through the bathroom speakers, a Muzak version of Call Me Maybe, was cut off, and the assistant cruise director came on the line, his voice having lost some of its cheerful patience. Donnie Fredericks again. We can't wait to see you down here at your muster station. Those of you assigned to the starboard side, your briefing will begin in five minutes. You port people, you get a little extra time to finish your cocktails. Or get new ones. You've got 20 minutes until your briefing. We will see you at 5 o'clock sharp. Remember, there will be consequences for lack of attendance. But an open bar will follow, with free drinks for all. Then, of course, dinner. Consequences, Carolyn thought. She pictured sunburned Midwesterners lined up, having their knuckles wrapped with a yardstick. Really? What was the worst they could do? Take away your seventh margarita? Wake you up for 5 a.m. yoga? Not let you get on one of the lifeboats if the ship suddenly crashed into a rogue iceberg? Outside the bathroom, her new neighbor, Teresa, was sitting in an armchair, looking at her phone. She stood when Carolyn emerged and asked, Feeling any better? Embarrassed, Carolyn said, You didn't have to wait for me. Us girls have to stick together, Teresa said, and gave her wrist a squeeze. 
They walked together toward the end of the corridor. You bring any drugs for it? I bought Dramamine in bulk for this trip, Carolyn said. She was glad to have met, seemingly, a calm presence already. Here she was, a single woman on an adults-only cruise, and the first person she met was a married grandmother. That was Carolyn, though, preferring the comfort of a flannel blouse to a bikini, or chamomile tea and conversation to body shots and casual hookups. There was that guy from the elevator, though. The critic. He was, no, Carolyn thought. If it happens, it happens. Next to the lifeboats outside, a makeshift stage was wrapped in tropical banners that rustled with the soft breeze. Between matching Celebration Vacation logos, Find Each Other was printed in cursive script. There was a thin podium with a microphone and reading light clipped to the edges. When the tall, muscled blonde man jumped onto the stage, the faint buzz of conversation faded, then stopped. For a moment, all Carolyn could hear was the gentle waves lapping against the ship just below the metal railing. They had joined Teresa's husband. He gave her a warm, knowing smile that seemed to say, Sorry about your stomach. Behind them, a group of three men, around her age, were laughing and clicking their plastic cups together. Clad only in board shorts and flip-flops, they had, though the sun was setting on the other side of the ship, sunglasses hung low over their already red faces. Whether this was from sunburns or alcohol, Carolyn couldn't tell. Probably both. They were establishing the ground rules for some sort of drinking game they were involved in. A competition. The first one to fall asleep or drink water was the loser, and they would be required to procure all the cocktails and shots the following day. They were calling it the butler game. Carolyn had two thoughts. One, their conversation was more befitting of a fraternity house. And two, she felt certain that one or all of them were currently studying the outline of her damn blue bikini. God, she wanted to change. On the stage, the blonde man began speaking. Thank you all for taking the time to join us down here in the bowels of the ship. Although this area isn't the most appealing, doesn't have all the bells and whistles of the upper decks, this is an equally important part of the ship. Safety is, as you must know by now, our top priority. As she'd noticed the closed-off corridors, Carolyn knew that no one had booked staterooms on the bottom levels. But still, the way he said it made it seem as if they were on the outskirts of the slums, and whoever might stay in the bottom-end rooms were the lowest of the low. The derelicts. And anyway, who begins a vacation speech with bowels? Teresa shot her a glance that seemed to communicate that she, too, found this odd. The giggling men behind them hadn't stopped their spirited conversation, but reduced the volume to the level of harsh whispers, the sort that drunks think is secretive, but is really still audible enough that everyone at a rowdy bar could still hear. They'd switched gears, though, and were now discussing the ship's various brunch offerings, locations, and individual menu items, their fervor more akin to a discussion about combines and draft picks, not Eggs Benedict. Hollandaise, though, whispered one man, while his two companions echoed, Hollandaise, Hollandaise. Focusing on an attempt to interpret their bizarre conversation, Carolyn didn't notice that the assistant cruise director had paused his speech. He was staring at Carolyn, a bitter gaze that made her stomach do another somersault. 
Her first reaction is to drop her head, to avoid the piercing gaze. But then she realized he wasn't staring at her, but through her. His attention was fixed on the brunch bros, like a middle school teacher, waiting in stern, awkward silence for the clowns in the back of the room to recognize that the teacher, as well as the rest of the social studies class, was waiting for them to shut the hell up. Behind her, one of them said, Shh, dude, shh, he's staring at you. Who, said another, Gay Donnie. In her periphery, Carolyn saw one of the shirtless men point at the stage. The third man said, Whoa, how do you know he's gay? No one with hair that blonde is straight. Donnie's hair was remarkably blonde, almost unnaturally so, and combed up into a large pompadour, then slicked back toward the rear of his skull. The sides, above his ears, and the back of his head were shaved, not fading into the shock of nearly white hair, but buzzed to a solid line. Although their line of logic was, on one hand, humorous, Carolyn still wanted to argue, to turn around and ask what hair color had to do with sexual orientation. But whatever could occur in reality would never match the righteous confrontation scenario her mind conjured. And besides, Donnie had resumed his presentation. She didn't know why, but Carolyn felt like she needed to pay attention, to keep an eye on him. On the other side of the crowd, Marie and Austin Holt were closer to the podium and the blonde speaker behind it. Marie didn't like him. His voice, soft but sharp, high-pitched and ever so patronizing, grated on her. Come to think of it, it wasn't just his voice. His body language was off as well the way he moved his hands and arms around wildly, and how he leaned forward over them as he spoke. The mask covering the lower half of his face, color scheme matching the blue and yellow vibrancy of his uniform, seemed to be less about preventing germs and more about concealing his mouth from public view. She couldn't tell if, between words, he was smiling or frowning or baring his teeth. Earlier that afternoon, the assistant cruise director had passed them on the seventh floor as the couple were searching for their stateroom. After a cursory handshake with Austin, Donnie introduced himself to Marie with a handshake that was a bit too firm and much too long. His other hand was brought into it as well, swallowing the outstretched palm Marie had offered. When he let go, he allowed his fingers to trace down her palm. But it wasn't that. The handshake and the lingering stare were one thing. She was an attractive woman. She'd gotten used to unwanted attention, and had learned to ignore it, unless she felt malice behind a man's voice. Although, she didn't exactly sense malicious intent in that 30-second conversation. She'd felt something. What? Something false. Counterfeit. Marie chalked it up to her new surroundings, unfamiliar situations, strangers, and by the time she and Austin had gotten to their room... The feeling had lessened. After checking out the sweet and attached balcony and making love on the bed, their bodies crushing the towel animals left for them, Marie had forgotten all about the blonde man. But now that he was 30 feet from her, clearing his throat behind the podium microphone, his starched uniform tucked perfectly, shock of white blonde hair like a torch against the muted gray of the ship's hull, Marie could feel that unease creeping back in. She gripped Austin's hand harder, when he reciprocated in kind, she wondered if he felt the same thing about Donnie Fredericks. Before I turn it over to our incredible security team, I've got some darn exciting news for you, 
As you know, we put many protocols in place to make this a mask-free experience, Donnie said, putting his fingers into rabbit ears for the last three words. But the Center for Disease Control has just announced a rollback on mask guidelines. A buzz went through the crowd. Donnie pulled down his mask, then off. His grin, wide, white, and almost too perfect, appeared rehearsed. Like he spent his evenings learning to unclench his teeth in front of a mirror. So, I want to welcome you all to a truly mask-free adventure. There was a round of applause, and of the few people still wearing masks, half of them pulled theirs off, revealing smiles much more authentic than Donnie's. But I'm sure you're all tired of hearing my voice, so allow me to introduce you to my boss, your friend and mine, Mr. Douglas Cummins. The crowd clapped as Donnie was replaced by a man bearing the exact opposite appearance. They were both tall, but while Donnie was thin and muscular, almost jarringly so, his boss was much larger in the midsection, his belly stretching the cloth and buttons of his identical blue and yellow uniform. Cummins had a longish, semi-gray beard, while Donnie, besides the blonde pompadour, appeared to be hair-free. The man's hair was long and untamed, like a retired surfer, and while Donnie had an even bronze tan, the man in front of them had a complexion that suggested he did most of his crews directing indoors. With a slight wave, the applause ceased. Please, I want you all to call me Mr. Doug. He had a southern drawl to his voice. A voice in the back yelled, Hi, Mr. Doug! Marie assumed it was one of the frat boys. Hello, sir, he said, pointing at the group of shirtless men. Now, I won't keep you long. I'll turn you over to Mrs. Burton, our safety coordinator, but I wanted to introduce myself and run through a few quick notes. First, we are so pleased to have you aboard the Baroness. For effect, he leaned back and knocked on the steel wall behind him. This is only her second voyage, and while we work to keep improving on many of the things she has to offer, we must ask you to bear with us while we work on renovations and train new staff members. While none of this should have any influence on the wonderful time you'd be having, we still want to make sure that any and all requests, concerns, and demands are handled promptly. If you need anything, please do not hesitate to ask anyone in the blue and gold. That's what we're here for to make sure you all have the cruise of your life and find love on the waves. There was another round of applause, much more heartfelt this time. And if your issue isn't resolved in a timely fashion, come see me directly. If you can't find me, Mr. Doug said, then leaned forward as if you were letting the crowd in on a private joke, because I'm at one of our amazing bars, then you find my second in command, Mr. Donald Fredericks, Donnie. He's always buzzing around here somewhere. He brings new life to the expression, being in two places at the same time. I swear, sometimes I don't even think he sleeps. Turning to look at Donnie at the left side of the stage, he asked, You don't sleep, do you, Donnie? There was a series of chuckles from the crowd. The blonde man didn't speak. He shook his head, but didn't return the gaze. Instead, he was focused intently on the crowd, eyes unmoving, but fixed. Marie felt like he was staring right at her. Now, folks, this is the unpleasant part, but I'm going to try and get through it as quickly and respectfully as possible. As you may have heard, there was an incident on our maiden voyage. A tragedy, pure and simple. Mr. Doug paused, bowing his head as if saying a silent prayer. He took on a more serious tone. 
I'd like to set the record straight about it here and now, because I've already noticed the rumor mill has been churning. The people around Marie murmured to each other. I've heard that there was a suicide pact, or that the Baroness had been taken over by pirates, or by terrorists. Oh yeah, I even heard some folks talking about an alien abduction. They even described these extraterrestrials down to the color of their skin and their lack of pants. Uneasy laughter from the cruisers. But I can assure you, E.T. did not set foot on this vessel, nor did Mr. Captain Jack Sparrow. There's only one captain on board the Baroness, and that's Captain Rawlins, 35-year veteran of the Deep Blue Sea. You'll meet him soon enough, but he's got his hands full right now preparing to steer this big girl out of Mexican waters. But none of those rumors are true. Just get to the damn point, Marie thought. Her palm had begun sweating, but she didn't want to drop Austin's hand. So here it is. God's honest truth. There were some murders on board. A surge went through the crowd, indistinct muttering coursing between cruisers like an electric current. Behind Marie, a woman gasped. I'm not going to get into any of the gruesome, unseemly details. That's what newspapers and magazines depend on. Instead, I'll keep it simple. When the pandemic kept us at sea for longer than expected... Some of the staterooms on the lower floors were broken into. Their occupants were attacked, and unfortunately, some of them did not make it back to the mainland. Those responsible were caught and arrested, however, and I'm certain justice will prevail. Mr. Doug paused again. Another blue and gold employee handed him a bottle of water. He drank slowly. Marie squeezed Austin's hand harder, and when he turned to face her, she mouthed, Did you know about this? Austin shook his head, but Marie wasn't sure she believed him. Out of respect, Mr. Doug said, we've closed off the decks where those horrible events took place. No one is staying in those rooms. Once the Baroness is in her new port of call, Venice, renovations will begin in earnest. A memorial is also in the works to be displayed prominently on our mezzanine level. Now, I don't want this to dampen your experience with celebration vacations, but rather than you be given false information from unreliable gossips, I'm taking the bull by the horns. I want you to hear it from me. I feel confident the victims would have wanted you all to enjoy yourselves, so please, have the time of your life for them. Marie felt sick to her stomach. She couldn't help but picture killers roaming from room to room. What had they used? What could you sneak on board? The customs people and Celebration Vacations employees were very clear about the searching of bags. While she figured most of that was to prevent people from sneaking their own booze on board, the sight of an assault rifle or machete might raise an eyebrow or two. One last thing, Mr. Doug said. Because this is a repositioning journey, the number of cruisers is far less than the Baroness is able to accommodate. My ass, Marie thought. No one wanted to come onto a death ship. If she had known, she wouldn't have either. Or would she? The company had cleaned her up and were now sending her off to a new life in the Mediterranean. No wonder Austin had gotten such an incredible deal on these tickets. They had to turn it all around somehow. The Baroness must have cost millions of dollars to build and maintain. Maybe billions. What were they going to do? Blow it up? Take her out to the middle of the Atlantic and pull the plug out from the bottom? Let her sink to the bottom with the rest of history's missing ships? No, they had to keep the revenue rolling in. 
There were thousands of employees on and off the Baroness that depended on paychecks. The higher-ups had to keep lining the pockets of their diamond-plated suit jackets. Marie understood all that, but somehow, it still felt wrong. Mr. Doug continued, While she is equipped and designed to house and entertain a maximum of 3,681 passengers, on this journey, we have a little over 400 of you on board, including the crew. 419 souls, to be exact. This is good news for you, because the pools will always be ready, and the lines for our famous crazy coconut daiquiris will be virtually non-existent. This also means that well over half of our normal operating staff has been moved to other vessels. We are, as they say, a skeleton crew. Some of our larger event spaces and restaurants will be sectioned off to conserve energy and manpower as well. This isn't bare bones, but it's close. I'm not saying we won't have any fun, though, and it certainly doesn't mean we won't accommodate your every wish. Mr. Doug took another swig from the water bottle, and Marie wondered if it was actually water. He seemed like the type who knew his way around a flask of vodka. I've been a cruise director for almost two decades now, assigned to a handful of our most beautiful ships, and I'll be honest with you, I have said these next words a lot. This is going to be my best cruise yet, Marie thought. I wonder if you said that on the maiden voyage. But this time, I don't know. I've got a gut feeling. This one, with all of you, Mr. Doug said, sweeping an outstretched hand over the crowd. This one, this one's going to be for the books. What do you say? Are we going to find love on the waves? A cheer went up throughout the starboard deck. Thank you for listening to me drone on and on, and I look forward to getting to know all of you. Donnie, would you mind introducing our esteemed safety coordinator? The assistant cruise director had begun to speak again, but Marie wasn't listening. Nor was she looking at him. Instead, she was pulling her husband through the sea of fellow cruisers to the outskirts of the crowd. She'd begun to feel claustrophobic near the stage and needed room to breathe, some room to think. They stood just outside the entry, to the passageway leading back to the elevator, and before she said anything to Austin or listened for him to speak first, she looked down the empty hall. At the T-junction, where the stateroom halls met the elevator, she could see the crawling black, the darkness from their sealed corridors inching across the carpet. It seemed to wrap around the corner into the light, the way a shadow couldn't possibly move. Even though they were in the warm waters of Mexico, the equator closer than ever, Marie felt herself shiver. Thank you so much for listening. An all-new chapter will drop next Tuesday. And if you're enjoying the show, please rate and review The Ghost Modernist wherever you can. I love to read your feedback, and it helps get this into the ears of more listeners. At the same time, please share it with friends and family. Let's scare them, too. The theme song for The Ghost Modernist was provided by Atrium Carcheri. As always, remember, there are two types of people in this world. The haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?